0: So we're getting back into Philippians. Um, And uh, by the way, I'm Paul Van Allen. I'm a deacon here. It means that uh, I don't get paid for what I do. So your expectations can be cut in half for the sermon. Um, (laughs) um, We're getting back into Philippians after two weeks off. So I'll do a little bit of a review, but I wanna start off and just give you my outline. It is the simplest outline of all times, and it has hand motions, okay? So you have to learn the hand motions, okay? This is the whole outline. Ready, hold your hand out. Down, out, in. Okay, you got it? Down, out, in. Do you have it? Okay, then let's just close in prayer. (laughs) Now let's open in prayer. God, thank you for your cross that, Jesus, you you picked up and carried. Um, thank you for coming down from heaven and taking on flesh that you can identify with us. And uh, thank you for pushing us out um, into obedience. And I would just pray, Lord, that you would give us enough, just a drop of grace, to have our eyes open to your word today and ears open to your spirit, hearts that are soft and maybe we step out of the room just a smidge different in our walks with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So what's the, what's the outline? Down, down out, out, and in. Down, out, and in. So um, the first point really goes back to three weeks ago when Jonathan preached that first section of Philippians chapter 2. And so we'll just do a little bit of review. I won't spend a lot of time on this because this was his sermon, not mine. But this was the down if we, I think we have a slide for that passage. Um, in verse six, it says that of Christ Jesus, he was in the very nature of God. He had equality with God, wrapped up, locked in. He had everything. But he didn't grasp onto that. He made himself nothing. In the Greek, he emptied himself out the kineo, he emptied himself out, and he took on the nature of a servant of a human being, and a servant, in human likeness. And then as he was found to be a man, he humbled himself from there, from total emptiness. He humbled himself further down all the way, obedient to God, taking up a cross, and dying on that cross. That's down. And if we look at the further part of the passage, this is not for, for, for the apostle Paul and for Jesus. If you look at our, at our gospel reading that I just read, it's not what I thought the gospel was when I first heard it. When I first heard it as a kid, and I don't remember if it was how it was presented to me or if I just put it together this way, I took the gospel was basically a get out of cross free card. And if you ask Jesus in your heart or something like that, you got a get out of cross free card. And that's a good thing because crosses are bad, you know? and. And then as you grow, as I grew in my faith and I actually began to read the Gospels and read what Jesus said, it's like, no, you need your cross. You need to actually have a cross to follow me. That's this down that Jesus says. In the verses 3 through 5, you see that this like, downward thing is all these implications for us, for our life. That's why Paul's bringing it up. He's not just trying to do some high Christology. He's trying to entangle us in this like, downward journey of Jesus. He says, do nothing, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than you. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then that leads in. He goes, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. That downward life, that downward trajectory is the life he has called us to as Christians. So You know, I think probably the first time it kind of got my attention that maybe this isn't a get out of cross free thing is when I heard that Peter is known to have died on a cross. The very first guy to follow Jesus didn't get out of a cross. He died on a cross, literally died on a cross. That uh, should have like kind of eliminated that potential uh, meaning of the cross for us. Jesus said, take your cross and follow me. So there's this down. Down has just a little bit of complexity to it because it's almost like a downward entanglement. Downwardly entangled in Jesus's own story. That that downward, that cross shaped, that emptying is something that has implication for us. In Philippians, Sarah mentioned that that you could call it the you Bible or the y'all Bible or whatever, that it's like a communal thing that there's this entanglement right there that you can't get out of. I'm not saying go empty yourself alone. Empty yourself in community with each other. How you look at each other, how you treat others, there is a downward entanglement that he has called us to. And before we get to the next step, so I said the first one's going to be short, down, just laying it out there. As we go to out, we have to look at these last verses, 9 through 11, because Jesus' downward journey was really like what, uh, what author Paul Miller calls the J-curve. He went down to go up. God sent him down to resurrect him. He sent him down to put him on a throne. And in those verses 9 through 11, again, this was, this was uh, still in Jonathan's uh, sermon. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that down, I'm adding a little complexity, it's a downward entanglement. And for Jesus, it had this high J-curve swing up where he is Lord. And then from that perspective, we go to step two, which is out. The Apostle Paul is in prison, but in, his, in, in verse, uh, our first verse, Chapter 12, he says, not just as you've obeyed me in person, but as I've been in prison and far away, you have continued to take this gospel thing out further. You have obeyed more while I've been far away. And then here's the verse, this verse, this verse, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, apparently this is in like all of the hardest verses of the Bible books that you can buy, you know like top 100 difficult teachings or whatever, you know? And it's a real tripping hazard for us Protestant believers in salvation by grace because it's like, what does this work? This, what is this go and work and make it happen? And then fear and trembling, that's not supposed to be wrapped up in this, right? And so, you know, that I honestly, I didn't read any of the hardest passages books because it's just not what this means. Jesus is saying, take out the salvation that I have worked for you and take it out for a ride. Let it come out into reality. Today is Juneteenth. Juneteenth is such a bittersweet day. It's the day, uh, so I was born 47 years ago, and 110 years before that, a boat hit the shores of Galveston with men from the Union two months after the Civil War had come to an end. But all the way out in Texas, not the middle of the country, far out, way out west, it had not, the news had not shown up there in a meaningful way that had any daily value for African-Americans. But on, on Juneteenth, that boat showed up and there was a mandate that what had been won needed to be worked out immediately in the state of Texas. So that, like, we live in Pflugerville, Texas, and there was an Instagram or whatever, I'm not in there, Lisa saw it, that, like, hey, today we recognize and celebrate that on, on Juneteenth, 1865, the Fluger family released their two slaves into a real freedom. And I think there's some of this going on here that Paul sees all these areas in our life where like salvation has been won, but it hasn't been worked out. There's area in our, areas in our lives that are kind of like the Texas of 1865, you know, five, the spring of 1865, where it's like we know the gospel. We know the salvation, but it hasn't actually played out here. So, you know, going through any history of Juneteenth, it's kind of like this, I want to cheer and get my blood boils at the same time. And um, and that's maybe same sort of like thing is, is playing out here. The thing that really made my blood boil is that after Juneteenth, a lot of ranchers held the news back until they could get one more crop, one more crop out of the slaves. And that. That, that makes, until about December, is when some of the ranches, it finally, finally hit home. And That's what I thought to myself as I hit this passage, was, man, God, where, am I trying to get one more crop of sin and unrighteousness in certain areas of my life? Liberate me, God. God says, God says through the apostle Paul here, work this salvation out. Like I said, the first thing that came to my mind was take it out for a ride. So today's my birthday. Next week is Ava's birthday. She just came back from camp. And Ava's turning 15, which means that she could, in theory, be behind the wheel of a car. And so this fear and trembling part of this, like totally, I mean, I literally have fear and trembling. I'm sure you're going to do great, Ava. But. We, uh, the, the driving school that I went to when I was 15 is literally walking distance from our house and it's still there. And uh, we drove by it the other day. and I was like, maybe we'll just let them teach. And then I changed my mind. This is just like a no point story, okay? But like, like I changed my mind when we drove by it the other day and uh, the guy was out showing the kids around the car and he was smoking around these teenagers. And I was like, what decade are we in, man? So that had no point. <laughs> other than fear and trembling. Okay, another illustration of taking it out, because this is this is how I feel. I find that, like, I try to take my salvation out into that place, that, like, dark part of my, you know, character, my life, my habits, um, places that just aren't really full of the gospel, and failure is often what I experience there, um, that's maybe a bit of the fear and trembling thing here. So I have another illustration also involving Ava, also involving a vessel, and I have a picture here. <laughs> Ava does cardboard boat regattas at her school at the end of the year as a celebration. So all these kids build their cardboard boats, and then they go out in twos, sometimes threes, with their paddles, and all they had was cardboard and duct tape and something, polyurethane or something. And so out they go. and so. You know, there's Ava. You can see her in the middle there, boat, in the back there, moving forward. She actually wins this race, by the way. Um, And, uh, you know, that's how it feels for me, taking out my salvation for work sometimes. That it's, there's limit to, there's failure is experienced, it seems like, as much as success. Um, I really appreciate that her school gives out not just a winner's prize for each category, but a Titanic award for the most glorious sinking, <laughs> um, which some of the kids have tried to only just go straight for the Titanic award. There was literally a boat with huge holes in it, and like that was the boat. You know, So I'm not, not advocating we go out and intentionally try to sink, but that whole working out, that J curve, worked out into our actual real life that we go back to verses 9 through 11. Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. Where are our knees still not bowing? Where is my knee still not bowing? Where will, where will I be able to play that out in actual obedience to the Lord? Will my knee bow in that space today? So justification for Paul is this like, he talks about it in the past, sort of like perfect, finished, wrapped-up thing, this righteousifying of us has been done. But when Paul talks about salvation, he actually... He talks about it more in the sense of, like, the working-out part, that it's something we're waiting for in Jesus, that, like, a lot of times it's, like, talked about in the day of the Lord. That's when we actually fully get it. But he also is saying, be working it out now. What about the fear and trembling part? I mean, the, the fear and trembling was really interesting. I was surprised to see that that exact phrase like phobo and thromo, fear and trembling. Though That exact phrase, Paul uses it three other times, but in all kinds of different ways, but always in connotation with relationships and the gospel. So like the way he approaches a community that he cares about, Corinthians, who he had this like sort of a strange, but he was trying to like bring them back in. He said like, I approached you with fear and trembling in the gospel and he says that of another community, I think, it was, I think it was also the Corinthians, towards Titus. When Titus came to them, you received him with fear and trembling, you know? And, that, and, and that's the way Paul uses it here, I think. It's like this seriousness, the seriousness of who's coming to you and what they're coming to you with, or that you're bringing something to them with a great seriousness. So there's my Father's Day application, that just the seriousness of like that role in our lives, you know, and for us dads, just seriousness, you know. And God's just like called me, even in the last couple of months, to like just wake up a little bit more as a dad, you know, and uh, just to be, just to be a little bit more awake. And I, just like I was like, yeah, I think this this actually plays here. Just a little bit more fear and trembling, a little bit more like seriousness and awakeness of the significance that this five, a little bit more of this and just a little bit less of that could make a big difference here, you know in this person's life, you know, and just to take that with some seriousness, some, some phobo and tromo, some fear and trembling, because I think Paul is using it here. Uh, let me see where I'm at. There is an element, and I think that it's worth just throwing it out here, that, you know, because this would, this definitely kind of brings in the fear and trembling. There is a sense of like, when you're testing out something, is it even there? you know what I mean? And I think there's a bit of that maybe at play, especially in Peter, 2 Peter 1.10. He says this, and I think this kind of like overlaps potentially for some people. He says to be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, okay? He's not saying you make him call and choose you, but test that out. Is that really there? Is there really something there? Are you, are you here this morning because he's called and chosen you and you are a follower of his? Or did some other social norm or pressure or lack of something to do get you here, you know? That there's a sense of that. Like, in our world, what we know, we need to try this stuff out, you know? But in that failure that we experience, so that we experience successes, we experience failures, both of those I see, when the, the, the cardboard boat that was like, bam diving in, the way that I see both of those as like trying out God's grace, that we both have successes in it, but that we fall into his grace too when we fall. So later when I get a birthday blessing, there's, that's going to kind of be built into that blessing, right? Help me stand. If he falls, let him, let, him, let him fall kind of into the grace of God, you know? The one thing that if it's not there for you, that should cause you fear and trembling in this Peter way, is if there's just sort of indifference, just indifference. If it's like, no, all energy goes into keeping that uh, Texas 1965 spring walled off from the grace of God. Anywhere but there, God. You know, and if that's my whole life, then I sort of don't care what your church experience was in the past. It's like, make this calling certain. Check, test, test it out. Paul was teach, speaking this into a climate in Philippians that was a community that seemed like they were under stress. If you go and pick and read through the rest of the book, there was stress from the outside, they were in kind of a vulnerable place with the Roman Empire, and it seems that that pressure was starting to like show cracks on the internal community. We'll see that later in the chapters that we get to, that there's like strain and pain and sort of pulling away that's happening within the community some. It's in that nitty gritty stuff. It's in this communal spaces that Paul wants to see the salvation worked out. Okay, it's mostly he's looking at communal stuff. Man, down and out, work this out. That's hard. Especially like, okay, so you're saying, like Jesus saying, take a cross, die, lose your life. I do not want to do that. (laughs) Especially in an actual moment. Like it's one thing for me to say it up here and be like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, but then in a real moment where, man, do I really need to, like, humble myself in front of that insult? Do I need to really humble myself in front of, you know, that criticism? Do I need to actually engage? Because I want to just retreat into indifference. So I was thinking about an illustration that would be, like, I think it would be the, the best illustration of all time, would be that, uh, that would be, like, the idea of sticking something in your own eye. So, like, this is why I've had, I've had classes since I was in third grade, I have never put contacts into my eye, because to me, that is like death. The idea that I was, so basically, I need to poke myself in my own eye every morning. I can't do that, you know, I can't, I can't do that. You should see, anytime I've needed eye drops, and Lisa's had to do it, I mean, it's, it's hilarious, because it's like, so wait, I'm supposed to not blink. Um, so the best illustration would be if I, actually, I thought about bringing contact solution and contacts and then me try to do it up here in front of you guys for the first time, and it would have been a total disaster. No, not that. Don't ah. Fighting my own will, a place of conflict. It can get ugly. Many of our contexts, I mean, I think the churches in those days were more sort of like naturally entangled with each other. Because they like their land bordered each other, you know? They didn't have modern distancing mechanisms, you know what I mean? So it was like they were like more naturally entangled, you know? Um, and, and I'm sure there could be application of like, how do we work that out more here, you know, in Church of the Cross? But when you are entangled and you have multiple people trying to put contacts in for the first time on a cardboard boat, you know, it gets to be ugly, you know? You start getting poked in the eye we can become the worst versions of ourselves in those contexts. Uh, But those of you who know us know that we're special needs parents. We have a double dose of kids with special needs in our lives. And there's big hard things about that, you know, like, okay, will there ever be retirement or empty nest or, you know, there's big heavy things, but it's the little bitty crazy making things that are hard. Really, it's Saturdays when Somebody sitting over there hates Saturdays because there's, it's not school and it's not church. So what is it for? You know. And so basically it gets in a bad mood. And, and uh, you know, she has no ambiguity tolerance. And yet we are the most ambiguous family ever. So she was it's like, you were born in the wrong family, kid. You know. But those days can bring out the worst in me. Some of you get texts on those days. Pray. <laughs> Pray. It is getting ugly over here at the Van Allen house. But that's where we turn to the hope in the passage. Not just down, and not just work this out, but verse 13 says, God is going to actually work it into us. Let's look at that passage together in your bulletin. It says, for it is God who works in you. In you. And what is He working in you? He's working in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He's working in you. In re that conflicted person who doesn't want to die, that doesn't want to poke himself in the eye, is being reworked. Someone who's like not just caught in this tangled downward mess, but actually sees it as the upside down kingdom that it is. That down actually is the new up. And down is where we follow Jesus... And that there is a J curve on the other end. So kind of like, let me at it on the way down. That's where this is going with Jesus. This is where, what he's working in us. He is, there's agency for us, right? There's go work on this. There's agency. It's almost like we're like subcontractors on our project, which is us. But God is the general contractor. This is God's sign that's like out in the front yard. I went for a walk this morning and these guys had a contractor sign, free consultation, blah, blah, blah. God's sign is out front of your yard if you are His. He is working on you. He is working in you, changing the way that we will, changing the way that we want, changing the way that we think, changing the way that we interact, the way that we act. That is good news. That is good news. You know, the like, authors like Dallas Willard, I always appreciate them because they take a stab at kind of like, can we change? How do we change? I'm like, how can we write so many Christian books and so few about like that question? You know? That's the one thing I wanted answered when I studied theology. It was like, can I change or not? You know, why is it taking so much money to try to get an answer for that? You know? <laughs> like Dallas Willard talks about our mind if in our emotions in our will are sort of like layered upon each other in this way that like what we think and what we believe and what we imagine affects our affect. What do we want? What do we like? What smells good to us and smells bad to us? All of that is being renewed so that you, when God says, taste and see that the Lord is good, there's this sense of like full experience that I know this goodness. I don't just kind of know it's good, I should take this, like I have to take my vitamins or something. Like, yes, that's what I'm reaching for. This reorientation of our inner person. This is the project that God has for us. I have no idea where I'm at on time. Okay, all right. So I've got just a few practical thoughts on that. Because basically I could say a ton of things about how God is working in us, right? And so don't see this as any kind of like exhaustive attempt. It's the things that came to my mind. God, the way that I put it in my notes here is God knows judo. Judo is the martial arts. Apparently all martial arts use the enemy's moves as power against them, (laughs) reverses that. But judo is the one that mostly does it. I thought maybe it was taekwondo because I know a guy that knows taekwondo and I tried to wrestle him once on the streets down on 6th Street, it was a friend of mine, and I went down hard and fast. And he was like half my weight. And I was like, surely it's Taekwondo that's the most. And I was like, no, it's Judo. Okay. But God knows how to use broken things. He even knows how to like use all the gunk and the sin and the trash and the things from your past and your present for working out righteousness, for working inside of us. He... Kind of another point in here that's associated with that. He has this uh, graceful way of making our sin stink and really just be awful to us at some point. Sometimes immediately, sometimes kind of like a later crop that grows that we're like, man, I don't want to go and do that again. He makes sin stink. But he also makes the gospel smell good. Uh, that earlier passage from two, three weeks ago, that picture of Jesus, so beautiful. In English that like most commentators are like this is clearly a hymn that was must have been like really used a lot and you know of course they can't find it anywhere so scholars just start writing papers as fast as they can because that's what they do but the commentator that I have leaned on says Paul just sees the gospel in such a beautiful way that this could very well just be his beautiful prose looking at this like the beauty in the descent of Christ the beauty of him moving towards the cross, the beauty of him as Lord, the beauty of the future. In the Anglican church, we try to value beauty. And, you know, old, you know, version of me would have been like, ah, no, that's not, we should just have a cinder block building and maybe a fan, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, and just like, you know, dirt floors. And that's fine, you know, but, but that beauty... What, I've, what I want to say is that beauty is true, especially when we're talking about Jesus. So all the beautiful things that are happening up here is just true. It just helps us at that affective level, that, in, that internal level, that renewing, so that we go, hopefully go from, yes, every day, yes, this beautiful downward journey of Christ is something that I also want to be a part of. That smelling good, the Power of Habit is a book that talks about, um, uh, I read a number of years ago, and, the, and one of the parts that stuck with me is this uh, chapter on how they tried to make self Febreze for a long time. Febreze apparently you know, like just eliminates smell, but it, it, the original version, it had no scent at all. It didn't have any scent. And so the marketers really struggled to sell it because just like, it just had function, but no sort of like affective, you know, like positive thing in itself. You know, she could spray it, hey, this works. So all the, all the commercials were like, it works, it works. Eh. Eventually, they sat down and watched tape of people cleaning a house. And they watched hundreds of hours of it. And they saw that, like, oh, there's moments in, the, in, in, a, in a house cleaning when things are getting better where you can actually see sense of satisfaction on people's faces. You know, that guy makes his bed or that lady, you know, finishes wiping the table and it's done. And there's just, like, a sense of satisfaction. And they kind of grabbed onto that. And they were like... We need to deliver just a little bit of satisfaction here, you know, so that people begin to, like, you know, want to use this product. And so they actually added all the different, like, you know, pine scents and all that kind of stuff, and off it sold, you know, that, hey, well, that is built in. We have function and affect in the gospel. We have the beauty right there. We don't have to add it. It's right there, the beauty of Jesus. And what we're trying to do is find our way to a place where we actually flip and we actually see the beauty of that in our lives working out. Beauty is true. God is patient. This will be one of my last points on this one, on this this working in. It's the chronic, hard things, the character-level things, the addictions, uh, the broken relationships that go deep, that are hard to untangle, that don't just go away with quick victories. We find our like cardboard boat sort of like giving way, you know, as we try to like navigate that. Trying to get past an obsessive thought, a wound that I just can't move past, that I wake up to maybe in the middle of the night. God, how can you help me through these obsessions? God's work in patience, his working in us, this like future thing that we're waiting for, but we can see progress now. I, I hesitated to share this one, but like, I, I have a friend who's a special ed teacher, and she also has kind of a wicked sense of humor, and that plays out really well for her when she was at the high school level, and I don't think she was doing this to be mean, actually, at first I did. She had a kid who had an obsession with closing doors. It's like, if he saw a door all the way at the end of the high school He couldn't go into class. He had to go down there and close that door. Henry is a little bit like that. He has a little bit of like a, got to get your fingers out of the way because the door is going to close. So here's the part that was sort of like, wait, is that even like legal? There was one door in their classroom on a cabinet that would not stay closed. And they decided that, well, they always would have to give cabinets to each kid. So guess whose name went on the cabinet that wouldn't close? It was, I guess, I forget his name, but, like, there was his name. And so he, for the whole year, closing that door and then backing back open. So many of the things. And that I think over the year, he gained freedom. Like, hey, I can't close this door on my own. I can't fix this on my own. The things that we deal with in our lives, the things in my home, in the Van Allen home, God has sort of, like, put that same thing. We lived overseas, and you have to do something for a visa, work or study or something. The one thing I was not willing to do was teach English. I was like, I am not going to teach English. That's intellectually insulting to me because that's something I learned when I was one, and I have no memory of learning it. I don't want to teach it. But that's one of the main things that people value when you go overseas to a place like like East Asia, is, hey, you know, you've got English. Can we have that? I would do all kinds of things to get out of it. I would even, like, if somebody came at me and I could tell they just wanted to get English, I would speak to them in, like, a a verse of ancient Greek or something to throw them off, you know, or use a Jeff Foxworthy accent, and they would just, like, really bad. You can be like, you are a terrible missionary, you know, which is somewhat true. Um, So it's interesting that God... And actually what I'm beginning to see is his mercy put my name on the door of two kids that will probably never speak. At least one of them will probably never speak even at a two-year-old level, maybe a three-year-old level. And we're 13 and a half years into that. And another kid that is a little bit ahead of that. That is maddening until I begin to see that God is working in me in that context. And I'll kind of end with this. We can endure a ton as human beings when there's meaning to it. The numbers of degrees and businesses built and, like, athletic achievements that are probably representative in this room that took an incredible amount of pain and sacrifice and suffering be unbelievable if we actually started to pull it out. But then we're also the people who, like, if there's a meaningless kind of, like, annoyance, it can be... intolerable, the fly that's kind of like landing on you. I cannot tolerate that. You know, I think of Jonah whenever the worm eats his vine and he doesn't have shade anymore. After all he'd been through, I cannot tolerate that. And what I want to just call our attention to is part of how God is working in us, even in community, in those hardest relationships, those things that don't seem to be getting better. He is working out salvation in you, and there is meaning there. not going to put an easy, quick gloss on how he's going to do it, but his sign is in front of the yard, general contractor at work in you. Let's pray. Lord, we come first just in awe of you. We see your downward descent. We admire you. We still don't really want to do that, but we want to learn. So, Lord, I'm going to invite you into my life. I'm going to, we're going to try to invite you into our lives, Lord, to teach us this downward descent. Help us to go out and work out our salvation, Lord, in those places that you want to see it play out. Let us fall into your grace, Lord. If anyone here, Lord, is actually more like indifferent, I just pray that you would save them. Um, and then, Lord, we just thank you that you are working this in us. We look for a day when we're not really conflicted about it anymore. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.